Go back and look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And today we're in chapter 3. And you may know that there's a poem that begins chapter 3 that made a song famous. Now a lot of people say that it made the verses famous, but no, they're already famous. The verses made the song famous. And it was uh, a song sung by this band. So some of you probably don't know who that is, but some of you do, right? The Birds. Um, it was a uh, song sung in 1965 under the name of Turn, Turn, Turn. It has the distinction of being the only number one song with the oldest known lyrics. Because these lyrics are several thousand years old. Um, so the, uh, this song is really a direct quotation from the book of Ecclesiastes with the exception of the three words, turn, 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 and then the six-word interjection at the, end of the, at, the, um, at the end of the song where it says, I swear it's not too late you know, following a time of peace, that it's not too late for peace. So actually it was done, um, uh, it was written by a guy named Pete Seeger in 1959, and um, he was a folk singer who was part of that protest movement and kind of took this and, and made it kind of a protest song, right? Well, Pete Seeger was interviewed by... Um, a Christian organization uh, that asked him about his religion and about God and about whether music can change the world. And uh, there's Pete Seeger. And so they asked Pete if he had any favorite songs. And he said, well, now that he's older, this was back when he was 88. He's now deceased. Uh, he died in 2014 at 94. But at that time, he said, you know, as I've gotten older, I find myself singing this song, Turn, 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 more than I ever did because it has so many meanings for me. It's interesting. And they, so the question, the follow-up question was, um, when you wrote this book, this song, it's from Ecclesiastes, do you turn to the Bible for inspiration? And Pete said, well... You know, I was leafing through it when I came on that poem. I just leafed through it by chance. Maybe God led me to it. Who knows? He says, I leaf through it quite open. or I leaf through it quite often, if only to shake my head in disgust. I quote Leviticus to people who think that every word in the Bible is absolutely gospel, and you need to obey every word. In Leviticus, it says, you must kill a bull if you're going to really love God, and you must kill it in a certain way or else you will be killed. So Pete Seeger wasn't really a great Bible scholar, right? He just leaves through it, just leaves through it, you know, and really doesn't apply it, interpret it, or understand it. But they ask Pete Seeger, they said, what is, your then, what is your definition of God? Pete says, well, I tell people, I don't think God's an old white man with a long white beard and no navel, nor do I think God is an old black one with white hair and no navel. But I think God is literally everything. Because I don't believe that something can come out of nothing. And so there's always been something and always is a long time. 
That would be my argument with most religious people. They think of God as mainly concerned with what goes on in on our earth. But God's got many things to think about. So Pete Seeger's not a great theologian as well. We might enjoy his song, but the man literally has no understanding or idea about its meaning. Well, we're going to look at this uh, meaning a little bit today, but we're not going to look at it from Pete Seeger's vantage point. We're going to hear it from the pen of Solomon. Solomon, who's revealed, or whose his pen has God revealed himself through. You got to remember that the Lord, that God appeared to Solomon twice. Solomon built the Lord's temple. God gave him great wisdom. Solomon was a Bible scholar and a great theologian. And we will learn from his pen this morning as we look at chapter 3. So it's, our focus today will be on God's sovereignty, that every event under heaven from Ecclesiastes 3. So you can see where we are in our outline. We've now been through chapter 1, chapter 2, but this uh, part of Solomon's investigation goes till chapter 6, verse 9. But you know, I'm always bringing Solomon's conclusions in because what people do in this book of Ecclesiastes is they take certain statements, and we'll see today, they take certain statements that are made as you progress to the conclusion, and they believe those are the conclusions, and it's not. So the book can be misunderstood if that's the way people study it, is they believe that as they go through it, this is the point Solomon's making, when no, Solomon's pointing us to the conclusion. And we have to, we have to look at it in those terms. Therefore, our theme verse in Ecclesiastes that I try to keep in front of us is the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. You know, it's, it's really a textbook on joy, as we'll see. And yet that's not how people think of the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope when you leave this study, you will think differently or think about how Solomon has applied this book. Our lesson verse for today is from Ecclesiastes 3.11, where it said, He, God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. As we uh, review a little bit from last week, we know that throughout this book, there's going to be two refrains that are woven. Today, we'll, we'll see these same two refrains. And they are, life has serious limitations. I mean, that's reality. There are things in life that are very, very difficult. One of the commentators says it this way, the world under the sun is a realm where vanity reigns. So life has serious limitations, but then life is a gift from God, and it's to be enjoyed. That's why I say this should be seen as a manual enjoy, because 
throughout this book, it's told it. Life is to be enjoyed, but it's a gift from God in order to be able to enjoy it. The reason I believe the book has that thought that it's vanity of vanities is that's from the second verse of the book where Solomon says vanity of vanities, meaning as that word's translated vanity, we see that it's translated three ways throughout the book that we need to remember. I, I mention these things because the further we get away from the first chapter, we might not remember that vanity of, is used three different ways. It's, it's used in a, t- a tense like fleeting, vapor-like, breath, smoke. It's used in that way. It's also used to mean futile, just meaningless. Cursed condition of the universe, a debilitating effect on man's earthly experience. So futile in that way. And then the third way it's used, vanity is incomprehensible. Life's unanswerable questions. Can't can't know what it, you know, what's what the truth is. There's some parts of life, some parts of God's plan that are incomprehensible. The word vanity is pebble. It's everything's a mist, a vapor, a puff, a bit of smoke. Life is short. Life is elusive, one commentator says. If we try to gain control of the world in our lives by what we can understand and what we can do, we find the control we seek is elusive. Last week we looked at how Solomon relentlessly explored path after path to the point where it comes to nothing. And in the end, he found there was only one path left. He explored, last week we looked at, he explored the paths of wisdom, gaining more wisdom, and it was a dead end. The the path of pleasure, pleasure that came from laughter and wine, and it was a dead end. The path of achievement, massive building projects, amazing success. It was a dead end. Accumulation. I mean, Solomon accumulated great wealth from all different sources, animals, gold, silver, spices, um, chariots. I mean, just amazing amount of wealth that he accumulated. It was a dead end. And then entertainment. He brought in singers, and he brought in vast numbers of concubines didn't provide any meaning or, or satisfaction, not what he was looking for. But the remaining path that was left was the path to God, which leads us into this week. As Solomon goes down the path of God, where that path takes him is to understand the character of God. What he's going to, what we're going to learn today from these verses today is the character of God, which man comes to if he goes down the path of God. He learns the character of God. Our theme today then is God's character is revealed as sovereign, eternal, just, and redeemer. First of all, God is sovereign. Let's go ahead and read the text for today. So if you're not in your Bibles yet, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we'll read the whole chapter. 
So there's a point in time for everything, and there is a time for everything under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search, a time to grow, uh, give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Well, what profit is there to the worker from that which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is already and that which has already been. For God seeks that which has passed by. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun that there is a place of justice. There is, a, there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both righteous man and the wicked man for a time and for every matter and for every deed. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. And as one dies, so the other, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Well, in verse 1, it says, There is appointed a time for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven. Who appoints that time? Who appoints the time for everything? Who appoints a time for every event under heaven? God does. God has appointed the days and the seasons of men's lives. Psalm 139.4 says this, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. Verse 2 says, A time to give birth and a time to die. God determined the day of man's birth and the day of his death. 
Psalm 139.13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. See, it wasn't by any act that we did. We didn't choose to be born. Nor will we choose the day of our death. God brings about the seasons. God assigns all these tasks. In verse 2, it talks about a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. God makes these seasons and the activities for the seasons. That cycle has, has began since the days of Noah, that we plant in the spring, harvest in the fall. That cycle has remained. There's a time to kill, in verse 3, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up. God oversees that. He oversees the slaughter of men in battle. He chooses who will heal and who will be restored. I think people most understand God's in control during that time of war when they cry out to God and their lives are threatened. Verse 4 says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Our tears of grief as well as our times of laughter are both from his hand. Mourning and dancing happen at different events, but the timing of either of them are not in our control, but they're in God's control. Isaiah 45, 6 says that men may know that from rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. One forming the light and creating darkness causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. Wilson says in his commentary, this doctrine has a hard edge. But the denial of the doctrine does not remove the light and darkness. It does not remove the peace or the evil. It just removes the possibility of finding any solace. You know, if you don't believe in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, then you don't have a way of solace knowing that God's in control. Verse 5, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. Sometimes we cast stones, other time we gather stones. It's like demolition and construction. They're both God-given tasks to be accomplished. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing in relationships. God gives the time for holding one another close, but there's a time to refrain from embracing. A time for abstinence, just as he is directed, in order to accomplish his will. Verse 6, a time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Look, there's nothing we possess on earth that's forever. Some things may be found, some will be lost. It does tell us that God gives us the ability. He gives us the ability to produce wealth here. He gives us the ability to store it. And there are times where we're able to do that, and there are times we're unable to hold on to what we've produced. There's, the Lord is in the real estate market crashes as well. Deuteronomy 8.17 says, Otherwise you may say in your heart that my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you the power to make wealth, 
that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. You know, Job had a good understanding of this. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gives, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As you remember, Job was in a time of great calamity then, not of his own making. But through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Just that understanding of God's sovereignty. He's the one that brings about financial security and financial calamity. Verse 7, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. When the commentary said this could refer to mourners who tore their clothes when they were grief-stricken and their comforters who kept silent. And then afterwards, people would repair their clothes and then speak freely. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Throughout the scriptures, we see God in control of battles. We see in the book of Joshua how he brought about victory, and he brought about defeat at times. Then in the days of Solomon, we saw that he brought peace until the end of Solomon's life when God judged him and punished him, and he brought, it, he brought uh, enemies into his life. This is the observation of the seasons of life. It's the reality that we cannot control them, but we have a God who is in control of them, right? He is sovereign over the events in this world. The repetitious cycles of the season of life are true, and, and they're for everyone. But God has a design and a purpose for everything that he does. You know, you look around this room, you can see Many people in, in all different seasons of life, young people that may be in school in that season of life, young married people who are without children in that season of life, then those with young children. I mean, these seasons have, have gone on since the Lord brought people onto this earth. Then there's those who are empty nesters whose children now have gone, those who are taking care of their parents. I mean, life marches on. We can see the seasons that are in front of us. There'll be the season when someone takes care of us. But God's ordained all of the events between our birth and our death. Solomon one, or Psalms 139.16 Your eyes have seen my unforced substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Job, chapter 14, verse 5, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 29, And not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs 
on your head are all numbered. The very hairs on your head are all numbered. Is that comforting? It is to me. I mean, that's of great comfort to know that God knows us, knows our hearts, knows us individually, and cares for us. But Solomon says in verse 9 then, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? Again, he's, he's going to bring us back to that reality. That reality of what we do under the sun is not where we get satisfaction and meaning. MacArthur says this, early pursuits are, are good in their proper place, but unprofitable when pursued as the chief goal. It's not that what we do here is not important or has value. It's not that that's what we pursue as our chief goal. When we lose perspective, as Solomon did when he began this research of all these other paths, remember who he did those for. You remember? Over and over again it said, as he pursued each one of those paths, he did it for himself. That refrain, for myself, for myself, six times. That is a dead end. Verse 10 says, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. So the pattern order which God brings about season upon season, that order does not bring about a feeling that man is in control or able to choose the timing and outcome of every event. He's not in charge. He's not in charge of success and failure. And therefore, it doesn't bring any deep satisfaction about all his efforts. But you know what it does do? It helps us come to an understanding of God's character. It helps us come to an understanding that God is sovereign. He appoints man's seasons of life, the day of his birth, the day of his death, and all the events in between. So where does this understanding of God's sovereignty lead, lead Solomon next? Well, it leads him to trusting God. If God's the one in control... God's the one we trust. And the one we trust is eternal. He created this world, and he created man for his glory. And that's the next set of verses that Solomon brings us. God is eternal. He has made everything, including man, for his eternal purpose. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, he has made everything appropriate in his time. That word appropriate could also be translated as beautiful. I mean, that's what God's done in this world. He's made everything beautiful. It's beautiful. It's with meaning because it's what God has brought about. God controls all the times and seasons of a man's life. He rules over all things, and he makes them beautiful. But what do we see? Do we see the whole picture that God is doing? We don't. We're here for a brief period of time, and our vision's very limited during that time. And yet, God's eternal. What he's doing is taking place over all ages. How do we connect with that? When we're so here for such a brief time, Well, verse 11 says, he has also set eternity 
in their hearts. And that's what we desire. You know, we want to have eternal significance. You know, um, so men create their own ways of significance. There's Hall of Fame. You ever hear of Hall of Fames? Hall of Fames. There's millions of Hall of Fames. There's the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame. There's the Texas Aviation Hall of Fame. There's the Jazz Hall of Fame. There's the American Classic Music Hall of Fame. There's the country music, dance music, blues music, Hawaiian music, Hall of Fames. There's the Grammy Hall of Fame with a Lifetime Achievement Award. There's Hollywood's Walk of Fame. There's American Theater Hall of Fame, American TV Game Show Hall of Fame. There's the Mascot Hall of Fame, National Radio Hall of Fame. And, of course, every high school has their Hall of Fame, every college, every pro sport, tennis, golf, football, basketball, hockey, baseball, motorsports, pro wrestling, skiing, all have their Hall of Fames. There's the National Adventures Hall of Fame, the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame, the National Toy Hall of Fame. Now, I don't know if that's for toys or the ones who invented the toys, but there's a National Toy Hall of Fame. You know, Linda and I visited one of these. This is the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And in there, that's kind of eerie looking, isn't it? I mean, if you make it, you get your bronze bust in there. And there's a whole bunch of them. Well, you know, these things are nice recognitions, right? But it falls short of having really eternal significance. Why? Why doesn't this have eternal significance? Because, you know, the next generation may not appreciate that, may not even remember that, right? And certainly we know what's going to be the end of all these things. It's all going to burn. But, man... God put eternity in our hearts, and we want to have eternal significance. But 11 says, yet so that man will not find out the work, so that man will not find out the work that God does. He can't. Man has made everything, including man. God's made everything, including man for his eternal purpose. Man cannot comprehend all that God is working out in his eternal plan because man's not eternal nor omniscient. We can't comprehend that which God has done from beginning and even to the end. But God does have an eternal plan. He has an eternal purpose. And his people get to participate in it. That's where we connect with eternity. We don't get to see the big picture, but we know there's an eternal plan, and we get to participate in part of it. You know, this is graduation season, right? Lots of graduation speeches. What's the famous verse of the graduation speeches? Always used this time of year. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Really not always used in context, but it does give a picture that God has a plan. This was for the exiles that were in Babylon, maybe not for the college or the high school graduates. But Psalm 33 verse 11 also says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart for generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. 
And then Ephesians 3.10 says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's eternal purpose that he's been working out from the time of creation till the time that Jesus will return. And then the new heavens and the new earth. Look, God gives joint meeting to the labor accomplished for those who trust in him. We do have eternity in our hearts. And the way that we participate in eternity is when we participate in God's plan. Nothing else that gives satisfaction. Nothing else brings any sense of fulfillment. Verse 12 says, I know there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. This is a manual of joy. Solomon says here, I know there's nothing better than for them to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. The psalmist, Psalm 13, 5, says, but I have trusted. See, that trust is so huge. He says, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. This is a heart endeavor. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of your wonders. will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praises in your name. This is where the joy comes from. Psalm 119, verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much in all riches. We're to rejoice. That should be the mark of all believers. That's an everyday activity. There should be joy evident in our lives. But there should also be the the things that we do. It says we're to do good, right? Psalm 37, 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. And he will do it. Further in Psalm 37, verse 27, it says, Depart from evil and do good, so that you will abide forever. See that eternity in our hearts. For the Lord loves justice, and he does not forsake his godly ones. <coughs> they are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked one will be cut off. Verse 13. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. That's God's gift to men. That they may rejoice and do good. Solomon's going to review this theme again in chapter 5 verse 19 where he's going to say furthermore as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor 
This is the gift of God. That is to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. Verse 20, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And of course, last week we saw in Ecclesiastes 2.24, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This I've also seen as a gift from the hand of God. It's from the hand of God. God gives man instruction on doing good and gives him the ability to enjoy his participation in his plan. Because God is eternal, and everything that he does lasts forever. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 33, 18 and 19, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Man gains his satisfaction from serving God and being a part of God's eternal plan. Verse 15, That which is already and that which, is, that which will be has already been, for God seeks that which is passed by. So God is sovereign, and also his, he is eternal. He made everything, including man, for his eternal purpose. God's ways are higher than man's ways, which leads men to trust him. God gives men who trust in him the ability to enjoy their season of life on this earth and then spend eternity with him. Furthermore, we see that God is just. Verse 16. Verse 16 says, furthermore, I've seen under the sun that's on the earth. We've seen that over and over again. This means the events that are done on the earth. I've seen that under the sun that in the place of justice, there's wickedness. So on this earth, there's much injustice. And this injustice done by wicked people. In the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. On this earth, under the sun, there's much unrighteousness unrighteousness by wicked people. And you know what it appears? It appears that men commit acts of wickedness without being prosecuted. These are men that are in places of power. They oppress and commit oppression and wickedness against others without punishment. Evil men who commit atrocious crimes without prosecution or they're in courtrooms of corrupt judges. Will God ultimately judge such evil people? Men stay on earth for too short a time to maintain a record of the events of human history. And they're lost forever to them. But not to God. God who is eternal, he recalls all things and brings them to judgment. Verse 17. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. So God will set all things right by his perfect judgment of all deeds of the righteous and the wicked. Oh, no. 
Gennetta in the wicked. It must have got slipped away. So, God will set all things right by his perfect judgment of all deeds of the righteous and the wicked. Later in Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, verse 9, as we're getting to some conclusions of this book, he says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood, and follow the impulse of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. It sounds like he's saying, let your heart and the desires of your eyes be, be what you do. But it's saying, but within the parameters of God's law. Not just unfettered debauchery, but those things that God has left for men to do. To do good. To do according to his law. Because he's going to bring all works to judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. There are parameters of, by which men's behavior is to occur on this earth. God has given those. God is sovereign. He's eternal. And now we see he's just. Look, Solomon clearly looks forward to a universal, divine, final judgment that will bring vindication to the defenseless and punishment to the oppressors. But it's a judgment that will be final in its future. And it's divine. So as we look at these next set of verses, we already know that Solomon knows that man's eternal, that there'll be this future divine judgment. He's just said that. So when you take the next set of verses, you have to be able to, to context that because people will take these set of verses that we're going to look at next by themselves and go, well, I guess there's just no meaning in life. We're like the animals. We all die. Well, there's, we are like the animals. We do all die. But let's look at what that says. Because this last part, God is Redeemer. Verse 18 says, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them. That word tested means exposed men. Exposed men in order to see that they are but beasts. Look, God has shown men that they are mortal and that their lives will end in death. Verse 19, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they have all the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. Okay, I have to take a break here and just tell you a little bit of a humorous story. This is true. My wife and my daughter and I were eating at um, Saltgrass Steakhouse over in Grapevine. And there were five young people, I believe, that came in with signs into Saltgrass Steakhouse, and they're holding their signs up, and they're chanting, just like us, just like us. And they're protesting the fact that Saltgrass is serving steak because the animals are just like us. And so in the middle of this steakhouse, they've decided to have a protest, and it wasn't very effective. Maybe a pro choice or a poor choice of venue, but it did create quite 
some laughter as the manager escorted the young people out. And by the way, their leader was chastising them because they were holding their signs improperly and they didn't get their chant right. <laughs> That's a true story. Unbelievable. So what Barker says about this, meanwhile, the teacher centers his thoughts on the inevitability of death. God makes all sensible people realize that they're as much subject to death as the animal world. Both are animated by a similar breath of life that sustains them while living and is withdrawn at death. People and animals also resemble each other in having bodies made of substances that revert to dust. I also remember a time I was coming back uh, from having been in India with, uh, on a mission trip, and I had to leave early, so I was coming back by myself, and I was sitting next to a young man from Germany, and he was, we were talking about what was going on in that country now that the East and West had been reunified, and he was telling me about his girlfriend who was from East Germany. He was from West Germany and how they were having to pay for all of East Germany. He wasn't real happy about that. And I said, well, okay, so what happens when you die? And, you know, we had been talking a while. I thought I could ask him that question. And he said, you know, I, I don't want to think about that. I said, what do you mean I don't want to think about that? He said, I'm too young. And I said, look, this plane could go down. You could die at any moment. He said, yeah, but I'm not going to. This is not going to happen. I don't even want to think about it. I'm going to put that off till I get your age. Wait a minute. And, you know, he really wouldn't engage in talking about it because he was afraid of death. That's really the reality. I'm not afraid of death. Death is a reality. We're all going to die. And that's not a horrible thing for a Christian. It's another season of, of what God is doing with us. We'll be with him eternally. Now, for the unbeliever, I get that. That's the last thing they want to talk about because they don't have that hope. They have to either hope that they're going to turn to dust and that's the end of them or that there's some unknown event that's going to bring about their salvation because the Bible tells them they're going to go to hell and they don't want to talk about that. We do. We want to talk about that. That's Solomon talks about it. He wants there to be that understanding, that reality. Look, Genesis 3.17 says this. Then he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Until you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, when God was saying that, he wasn't saying there's no afterlife, was he? No. What he was saying is, that is the, that's what's going to happen to man. There's a time when you will die. This verse describes death that results from man's rebellion against God. But it does not speak of man's eternal destination. It's just the fact, the reality of death. It's a statement. And as we know, Solomon asks this question in verse 21, who knows the breath of man ascends upward? Who knows that the man of breath ascends upward and that the, the breath of, of the beast ascends downward to earth? Now, there's a, several different ways to interpret this verse, okay? Some say Solomon was just saying, nobody knows. Well, we just saw Solomon knows. He just talked about an 
a divine future judgment. But then it says, well, nobody knows apart from God. In other words, those who have rebelled against God, they don't know. Or some would take this verse to mean that it's a rhetorical question. That the breath of men does ascend upward and the breath of beasts descends downward to the earth. What it certainly means, though, is although men will be like animals in their death returning to dust, God will redeem the man who trusts in him from the power of the grave. Psalm 49, 12. But man in his pomp, a man without understanding, will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. But see, the psalmist knows what happens. Psalm 49, 15, he says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, the power of the grave, for he will receive me. Later on, as we get to the conclusion that Solomon makes in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, he says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Verse 22, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Garrett says, since humans are truly mortal, two conclusions follow. First, neither possessions nor accomplishments are eternal. We should properly use and enjoy them while we're here and still see the light of day. And how do we do that? We see ourselves as stewards of that which God has given us. Second, because we are by nature dependent and contingent, our hope for eternal life must be founded in God and not ourselves. For the Christian, this means that immortality is in the risen Christ. Right? 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So God is sovereign. God is eternal. God is just. God is our Redeemer. None of these conclusions did Pete Seeger come to. He never knew God. These are the conclusions that a man of God came to in the way that God has revealed himself. He's sovereign, he's eternal, he's just, he's our redeemer. It's God who brings man into the world by his divine act, who controls the events on this earth, who will ultimately judge all men, who redeems those whom he brings to salvation through his son. Let's look at some applications. Briefly. Trust in God who is in control of the various seasons of our life. Familiar verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Participate in God's eternal plan 
that by grace he gives us a privilege for us to share in. Ephesians 3, we, we read the last part of that passage. I back up a little in Ephesians 3 to verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This is Paul speaking about his, his uh, ministry to the Gentiles who are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers, the authorities, and heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We participate in God's eternal plan through the sharing of the gospel and through the ministry he's given us in his church. We're to do good with the resources God has given us in order that we might please him. There were so many verses, so many verses. I'll read you a few. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, while we're here, while we're on this earth, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are the household of faith. 1 Timothy 6.18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Titus 3.8, this is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We want to do good with the resources God has given us in order to please him. And we want to rejoice in the Lord, for that is the gift God has given us. Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 13.11, finally, brethren, Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the way you have so clearly shown your love for us. 
that you've condescended to have relationship with us. That, Lord, it was by your very act that we were brought into this world at our birth. And that, Lord, you're sovereign over all the events that take place in our lives. You are in control. We're thankful for that. Lord, we acknowledge we don't understand all that goes on. But we trust you. We trust you, Lord. Because you're eternal. Your plan goes forward as it's gone in the past. It continues to move forward. Your eternal plan. And Lord, what a privilege it is that you give those whom you've brought to yourself through the salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ the privilege to share in that eternal plan. Lord, we acknowledge we don't always understand or see the complete plan, but Lord, we know you've made it all beautiful. And we appreciate your beauty. Father, we're thankful you're just. We acknowledge that there are things happening on this earth of great injustice, great unrighteousness. And yet, Lord, we know you will bring all things. You will make all things right. You're perfectly just. And your justice will be done. And Lord, we're thankful that you are a redeemer, that by nature you save those who are lost. And Lord, every one of us were dead in our sin. Every one of us were turning from you, and yet you place the iniquity of all, us all on your son. You've forgiven us all of our sins, past, present, and future. Have you imputed the righteousness that your son earned to us, Lord, that we might be used by you here on this earth to do your work, to do good. Lord, help us to not grow weary of doing your work here, of doing good. Help us, Lord, to be mindful every day that that is the privilege and opportunity that we have to be part of your eternal plan. And Father, help it to be evident in our countenance and in our life and in our daily interaction with people, that we share the joy that you've given us, for it is truly your gift. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.